Welcome to Physicians Weekly. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Physicians Weekly's podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Giles from Medical Medical Publishers, in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. The Physicians Weekly podcast provides thought leader insights on the latest medical news, clinical trial coverage, and advances in medicine and healthcare. In today's episode, it's the last one of this year. I am sharing it with Dr. Alex McDonald of Physicians Weekly, and he'll be introducing himself in a second as well. But we'll be giving our perspectives in no particular order of importance for our choices of the top 14 medical innovations of 2022. Some of these are already in practice, but a lot of them are just recent breakthroughs that are not quite ready for quote unquote prime time. And all in all, it really was a great year for medical science. And let us know what you think the biggest innovations for medicine were in 2022. Next week, we'll be off for the holidays, but we'll be back the week after that, again with Alex McDonald, and we'll be talking about what to look forward to in 2023. Enjoy listening. All right. Thank you so much for being here, Alex. Could you just spend a second introducing yourself before we get started on this? Sure. Uh, my name is Alex McDonald. I practice family medicine and sports medicine in Southern California at a large combined group practice. I have lots of interests, social media being one of them and helping to expand our voice outside the four walls of our clinic, our hospital, our exam room. I do a lot of policy work with the American Academy of Family Physicians, as well as some teaching on one of our core faculty, our residency program here as well, and the medical students as well too. So I, I, I wear lots of hats and do lots of things. And like a true family physician, I get bored doing one thing. So I do lots of things. Well, that's exactly why I wanted you here today to join me. It's really good to hear the different voices out there, and I'd love to get your feedback on some of the topics. So for, here at Physicians Weekly, we've come up with some of the what we consider the top 14 medical innovations for 2022. And what we thought this year in the last episode of this year, Alex and I would kind of go through them and, and sort of bounce them off the group here and, and see what resonates and what doesn't. Does that sound like a good idea? Sounds like a wonderful idea. But the first one I wanted to touch upon was actually the next generation of mRNA vaccinology. Now, I know that this sounds like spaceships to most physicians, but what is your impression when you think of those words? What, what do you think about? Well, I, I think about the fact that we had this highly effective mRNA COVID vaccine, which is the first time that mRNA technology was used in a vaccine setting, obviously been used for, for cancer and research for you know 20 years. But I think this sort of novel approach will really change the way that we sort of stimulate the immune system, uh, so to speak, with a whole different varieties. And I, I've heard multiple vaccines, other type of mRNA vaccines are in the works, including the influenza, if I'm not mistaken, and yeah. will, will allow us to be much more, much more nimble and reactive, or excuse me, proactive to treat some of these viruses versus sort of like trying to read the tea leaves and predict what the dominant strain is going to be, you know, a year, six months in advance. Exactly. I think it's kind of a rinse and repeat approach to the COVID-19 vaccines. There are so many viruses out there where we do not have strong vaccines and they've been mm -hmm. slow in development. So I think, you know, they're, they're talking about even broad applications like cancer. I mean, Zika virus was one of the ones that has been getting a lot of attention in the sort of mm -hmm. global infectious world. Oh, that's um, right. But I think one of the best things about this technology is it's quite cost effective. And I think that's something that people don't realize down the line, you know, on the boots on the ground there is mm -hmm. it's, it's relatively inexpensive. And I think that that makes it a little bit more, what's the word, realistic, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> it, you know, it's just been so impressive watching how this effective COVID-19 vaccine has been developed and produced and then deployed, which was something that no one had anticipated being as, as quite as good as it actually worked out. Right. I, I, I always think it's interesting what, what we can do as, as scientists, as researchers, as, you know, 
you know, health policy leaders when, you know, push comes to shove and we're back into a corner, how we can really adapt and respond. And I think this is hopefully one of those silver linings, which has come out of this whole COVID-19 pandemic is, is really the, the broad acceptance and understanding of this mRNA vaccine technology, which will likely leapfrog it years and years ahead of where it would have been otherwise. Absolutely. And I like the way you use the word nimble, because that does describe, I think, the way that this really changed the landscape in a fairly effective way, but also scientifically sound, evidence-based. So Absolutely. good good for humanity anyway. So <laughs> I think I think the next topic that we were going to touch upon was the new treatment for the reduction of LDL in primary and secondary cardiovascular disease prevention. This has been a really big difference right now. And I, I know that this is sort of still in the academic world, but I think enclizaran is just one of the drugs, but it's an, it's an injectable, small interfering RNA, and it targets the PCSK9 protein. And it's really done wonders for people with familial hypercholesteremia, for example, where standard LDL reductions have just been ineffective. Do you have any personal experience of that? Have you ever seen that in your experience as a GP? No, you know, I have not really seen a whole lot of this yet. I've heard of obviously the PCSK9 uh, protein and, and some of the different technologies and medications focusing there. Um, I haven't heard of this one specifically. Um, I think it certainly will have use. I, I don't think it'll be it'll be a very broad use, but I, I definitely have some of those patients, especially with familial hypercholesteremia, whose LDLs are you know 250 and they are eating right and exercising and doing everything they they possibly can. So I definitely think there's a, a subset of patients where this will be very very useful. And I always you know, I'm a lifestyle medicine guy. So I always tell people, you know, diet, sleep, exercise is the foundation to any treatment in the first step. But I think there, this will certainly have an impact on those patients. I, I do find it when I talk with patients, you know, particularly when we talk about, you know, your, your 10-year ASCB risk score, it's hard to kind of convince particularly relatively young, healthy people to take a medication when they feel fine, right? And they don't 10 years down the road. And so I wonder how this will be sort of adopted by patients and the public sometimes, but there's no doubt that th this will have a role. And I'm excited to see where it shows up and how it shows up. It'll probably be more niche than I think some people are predicting, but still, it, it will certainly be a game changer for some of these patients. Absolutely. But the, I think the beauty of this particular medicine that that we pulled out, and, and there's, it's getting a lot of attention in the New England Journal and so forth, is that it's a twice annual injection. Right, exactly. And Much that means that compliance is 100%. And it just really makes sure we know that adherence and compliance is really, is really a struggle with a lot of the cardiovascular primary and secondary prevention approaches. And so this is something that we're hoping will really be a game changer, but you know, for those patients, indeed, like you said, niche patients who have no other options. Yep, agreed. Okay, I think an exciting thing that I've uh, definitely been impressed by are the long-lasting monoclonal antibodies for RSV for respiratory syncytial virus. And you know, you as a family doctor, you probably see this all the time. Yeah, you know, when I'm in the hospital, we know that it's RSV. Usually we just call it a cold when I'm in the outpatient setting. <laughs> um, uh, so I think it's interesting. A lot of RSV has been getting a lot of news this year, although it's, you know, been decades and decades it's been around. We definitely see it more in, in the pediatric population, especially our, our children less than two tend to be most affected by this in, in a very small fraction, but some do end up being hospitalized. But I think just because of the severity and the, how widespread RSV is this year, it's affecting a lot more kids. And obviously it's making the news a lot more as well too. So, you know, I think anything we can do to help, you know, reduce the risk of being hospitalized or severe disease, I think certainly should be explored. No, no question. 
Right. And so in, two, in March, I think 2022, there was there were two papers that came out that particularly pointed out that there's a monoclonal antibody now called nercivimab, which targets a certain part of the virus's surface. And the great thing about this is it requires a single injection prophylactically. Oh. And it seems, you know, for any high-risk infants, especially, I can imagine that being a, a game changer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anything we can do to prevent illness. I mean, again, I'm a, I'm a primary care physician. That's my whole that's my whole reason for existing as a physician is to prevent illness in many respects. I mean, I think it's hard to know sort of who's, who's high risk, who's low risk, you know, and that's obviously, I think time will tell where we sort of draw that line. But I think this certainly could be a game changer, especially for a lot of those, you know, high risk, you know, post NICU babies as well too, yeah. when, when we know it's going to be a bad RSV season. Exactly, exactly. But moving on, the next one on my list here is actually something that treats a disease once it's already there, and that's a novel drug for treatment of type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. And there's been, of course, you know, we know that diabetes, it's a huge problem in the United States, in particular, one in 10 individuals are affected. I don't know, maybe those numbers are even old. And of course, it has a a big problem. And this once weekly injectable dual glucose dependent so it's a GIP. And I can't even pronounce all these words, glucagon like peptide receptor agonist. So the GLP one. And that really seems to be controlling blood sugar. It's under the skin and mm-hmm. it, you know, sort of stimulates the natural processes to to release uh, insulin properly. So yeah, do I you mean, have any experience with that, or is it just two phase three still? This is this is still phase two phase three uh, at this point. I think the anything we can do to help combat diabetes is you know, one in 10 people have diabetes, as you mentioned, it's just, you know, endemic, unfortunately. I think a lot of my patients are very interested in some of those once weekly injectables. There's a lot of resistance to doing insulin or daily injections. And so I, what I really think is potential here is that that once weekly just makes it life a lot easier for patients as well too. I do worry a little bit about some of the other medications that sort of work similarly to sort of secrete insulin from, from the pancreas. I, I worry that you have this potential to kind of burn the pancreas out, so to speak, if you're just squeezing and squeezing the pancreas over time. So I worry a little bit about the long-term effects of these types of medications on my younger patients who have diabetes, but but no question, this could potentially be, be a game changer in terms of compliance and anything we can do to help you know combat diabetes and the more tools in our arsenal, the better off. For sure. I mean, and like you said before, I mean, primary prevention should be our, our main focus because that would already reduce that one in 10 quite a bit. But, you know, sometimes you have individuals you just simply can't do much about, you need to treat them. So this is something to, to consider. So another kind of exciting turn, I think, in something that we haven't really had a lot of you know, budging in innovations for a long time is early detection of sepsis. Mm. And some artificial intelligence has really changed some, some of the field this year. And there's been some, you know, diagnosis is complicated. We know that. And in this particular studies that, that we are talking about here, there are AI algorithms that mm-hmm. really detects the key risk factors in real time and monitors and you know how time is so essential uh, when it comes to abscess it all comes down to the clock so what do you think about that have you how do we flag high risk patients and and do you think something like ai can help doctors facilitate that in the er Absolutely. I think this is a no question, something that needs to become more widespread. In my organization, we actually have sort of very robust tools, which help kind of, you know, remind physicians, hey, did you think about sepsis? You know, these little pop-ups, and you obviously want to be avoid of pop-up and alarm fatigue, especially in the electronic health record. But I think the more we can do, and and we as physicians, you know, there's, there's a little bit of resistance to artificial intelligence. And I've actually heard the term used, not artificial intelligence, but augmented intelligence. And they help us do our jobs better. I think that's the bottom line. And so I do know a lot of 
physicians, maybe those with more gray hair, uh, are very resistant to sort of other people telling them how to practice medicine or what to do. But at the same time, we're human and we're fallible. And I think the more we can use these tools to help synthesize overwhelming amount of information sometimes can help us do our jobs better. So I think this is something that absolutely we need to think about. We need to roll out. It's already happening in some places, but that that real-time monitoring is the key is because, you know, a single point in time is not nearly as valuable as looking at a trend over time. And I think that's where this, these tools really come in handy and become more helpful. Yeah. And all of us in the clinic have seen someone, you know, pass away from sepsis that could have been prevented if timely intervention had occurred. It's just one of those things that's just so hard to deal with. So, yep, yeah, I, I have full hope that this will actually assist our work here. Yeah. Um, so next, I want to talk about hypertension. It's kind of in the same boat as diabetes and so forth. But one thing that's really come up this year is, and last year, is using machine learning to actually figure out which medications or combinations of medications and dosages to improve the control of hypertension. And this is a complex, there's a lot of products out there. How do you, as a family doctor, choose hypertension medicines? Yeah, that's a good question. This makes me think of precision medicine. I, I, I remember hearing the topic yeah. precision medicine, you know, 20 years ago uh, when I was in medical school. And we, I feel like we're still no closer. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> quite frankly. I'm afraid you're right. Yeah. So I think this, I, I feel like is probably, again, too early for prime time. But I do definitely think there is some some thought here. A lot of times it's it's algorithmic to some degree. You know, what what's formulary? You know, what, what can the patient afford? You know, I always like to start with my diuretics, my hydrochlorothiazide my chlorothalidones and my, my ACE inhibitors as sort of that first line. But then from there, it depends a lot on the patient's comorbidities also. In, in, you know, do they have heart failure? Do they have kidney disease? Do they have migraines? You know, is there something else I'm trying to treat while also simultaneously treating their hypertension too? So I, I think a lot of it depends on the individual physician, probably more than the patient right now when it comes to treating hypertension. But it'll be interesting to see where this goes. I'm, I'm not going to hold my breath, quite frankly. <laughs> um, but, I, I, but I do think that we need to continue sort of this push of deciding how we how we can better predict which medicines to start with and which medicines patients are going to better respond to as well. Yeah, I, I feel your skepticism to a certain extent here. I mean, I've seen a lot of things change, but it's just still so far from prime time that it, it is hard to get excited about this fully. But I'm curious to see what's going to happen in the coming year and anyway with that. So Yeah, absolutely. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll touch base next year and, and revisit all of these. We can see That's, what happened, right? That, that'd be great. Yeah, I'd love that. There will probably be a lot of not much. <laughs> We're so optimistic. Anyway, I think that there was some breakthrough treatment from postpartum depression. And this is something that's been, of course, affecting a lot of women. And yep. this is a novel therapy. It's administered around the clock for just 60 hours. And it uses a neurosteroid to control the brain's response to stress. Um, the treatment design is kind of groundbreaking because it targets the signaling that's thought to be deficient in horm mm -hmm. hormone-sensitive postpartum depression, but this treatment does show benefits very quickly. And while traditional antidepressants typically take two to four weeks to pick up, you know, this is a really rapid treatment. It's, it's you know, something we'll have to see. It's, again, it's early days, but the studies that were reported this year were pretty exciting about that. Yeah, I'm actually really excited to see where this goes. I guess I should give a disclaimer here. My, my wife is a, a psychiatrist, uh, mm. and obviously I treat a lot of depression in my own primary care and telemedicine clinic. I, I think this would be, this would be groundbreaker. I mean, you take, you take probably one of the most stressful life events, yeah. um, and you throw on top of it, you know, depression, which can just make it even so much more harder for, for these women. So I think anything we can do to help them, I, I always tell people we have, we have very good tools when it comes to treating depression and anxiety. 
but nothing works quickly. You know, CBT doesn't work quickly. Medications don't work quickly. Lifestyle interventions don't work quickly. And I think anything we can do to kind of help these women feel better so they can really be there to care for the first, you know, few months of, of their infant's life. We know that time is so critical for both mother and, and baby. Anything we can do to help that is, is really, really beneficial. I do think this is really interesting and, and very unique, trying to convince a mother to potentially be in a hospital or, or somewhere where she's <laughs> getting an infusion for 60 hours straight might, might be a bit of a barrier. But if we know that's going to speed the response to treatment, that's obviously uh, uh, could potentially be worth it. I'm, I'm excited to see where this goes. Yeah, I think that certainly women who have previously experienced it would be much more interested in, in receiving that kind of preventative prophylactic care because it would be, uh, once you've been there, you know how bad it is, right? So, and it doesn't yeah. just affect the the woman and infant, it also affects the whole family, of course, the partner right. and, and any other children that are at home uh, will be grossly affected by this as well. Exactly. So, but I, I think it's exciting. So, here we've got hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Hokum, targeted. Easier. Yeah, thank you. Hokum. There's been some targeted therapy that's come out, and it's been pretty limited until now. And so <laughs> one of these new treatments, it's a person-class medication. It specifically targets the heart muscle to reduce abnormal yeah. contractions. And this is really based by genetic variants that put the heart into overdrive. So you were talking about you know precision medicine, and, and mm-hmm. it is an old idea. But in some cases, we're really starting to see a few of these, you know, niche patients finding specific answers to their problems. And well, this was approved in April and we're waiting to see if how this is actually going to work with Hokum patients. Do you have anything, any experience with this? I mean, I, I see so many patients with Hokum as well too. And I think your point is well taken. We, we have a lot of medications to treat downstream, you know, but we don't have a lot to treat sort of upstream, if you will, and root cause of the problem. And so I don't know how many of these patients with sort of this genetic variant are going to be targeted specifically. I don't know if this will be beneficial for patients who have, you know, hokum as a result of, you know, decades worth of uncontrolled hypertension or other yeah. potential causes. It'll be interesting to see kind of how this plays out in real time. I definitely know there is a huge percentage of our patients who are struggling with hokum and treating the symptoms is not as beneficial as re- treating the root cause. And so, you know, I, I haven't seen this personally. Um, I know some of my cardiology colleagues have, have sort of been talking about it since it was approved this year, but it will be interesting to see where this comes. I think probably it's going to be more in the cardiology world versus my world in the primary care for now, at least, but potentially like all things, it will likely end up in the primary care world in the coming years or two decades. That's right. And at least dealing with the adverse events that may come from these therapies as well. So that's important to keep an eye on too. Absolutely. So non-hormonal alternatives from menopause. So we know that you know about 50% of menopausal women, they experience hot flashes. And now mm-hmm. there's finally a non-hormonal drug called NK3R antagonists. And they seem to be a viable alternative to hormone therapy. Have you heard about these or would this be something that would be used for your practice? Yeah, I mean, uh, like all things new, I'm I'm kind of curious to see sort of what the what the downstream consequences or side effects might potentially be. I know when you know hormone replacement therapy HRT came out, it was sort of all the rage for quite a while until we realized, oh, you know, if the it has its problems. <laughs> Ten years down the road, we end up into some increased risk of cardiovascular events and things like yeah. that too. So I know there are a lot of women who who struggle with menopause and and but they're resistant to to take any kind of hormonal medication as well, understandably so. I think it all just depends on the individual too. That That's the biggest, the bottom line here is if there's those things which we sort of have to treat um, and those things which we potentially could treat, but ultimately having the the patient decide if this is something they want to pursue is, is the goal here, or it, I think is an important piece of the conversation here, especially with a new medication like this too. But this is certainly interesting in terms of the novel target, if you will, as opposed to just kind of treating the, the, the vasomotor symptoms, again, downstream, so to speak. Okay, that's great. 
So we've been talking about some things that are more common, but there's also some rarer things. There's an mm-hmm. implantable for severe paralysis that's been approved this year as well. And this is this leverages implanted brain-computer interface technology. But I think this technology is really interesting because it has this potential of you know offering mobility to people that don't have that. <laughs> and so it's just something that I wanted to name as a breakthrough, but I'm not sure I really have anything to say about it because it's been a very limited application at this point. And I certainly don't have any experience with it. I don't know if you do it. No, I, I definitely don't have any experience, and this is certainly certainly fascinating. It feels a little a little sci-fi, but it makes sense too. And it'll be interesting to see if we can if we can really help these patients. I think it could be really really beneficial for their quality of life as well too. But again, I, I don't have a whole lot <laughs> I don't have a whole lot to say about this either. Yeah, I mean, it's also the the level of evidence is always low. It takes a little bit more time to get this right. kind of data because there's just a you know you can't do randomized controlled trials, but it's something that is looking really good and it's starting to really show promise and picking up. And you know, we all just want to, people with limitations uh, due to paralysis to to find solutions to their problems. And it's just so it's been so challenging. We just haven't had any improvements for years. Yeah, so, absolutely. Agree. So, you know, CRISPR technology, it won the Nobel Prize a few years back, and mm-hmm. it's exciting from genetics point of view, but it's also showing some actual, app, you know, it's delivering now a little bit. We're starting to see it slowly, slowly, slowly in the clinic, at least in experimental things. And in nephrology, which is really my background, we just watch patients with, you know, amyloidosis really just mm-hmm. kind of decline as they go on. And this has been so pretty exciting. We've got some data from a trial that's shown for the first time a CRISPR-based gene therapy that really removed the problem that was causing transthyrotine amyloidosis. And this has really been impressive. It, it reduces the disease-causing protein by 90%. And in doing so, it's really kind of offering new hope for these patients who are typically just on a one-way road going down. So uh, gene editing, it's again, science fiction a little bit, but not so much anymore. Starting to get there. Yeah, no, I think this is really interesting, and I, I'm going to defer to your expertise here. But this is this is really fascinating, and I, I do know these patients, you know, really, really struggle, especially especially sort of with their mental health, feeling like they have no yeah. hope. As you mentioned, sort of a, a one way road. But this could be a game changer. I'm I'm certainly interested in seeing where this goes. Okay, so this is a bit on the global infection kind of strategy, but there are leishmaniasis. I can't pronounce Kala Azar. It's the sleeping sickness in Africa. It's mm-hmm. a huge problem. It has a very low survival rate, and it's really affecting a lot of people in in parts of Africa in particular. But you know, it's not unknown in other parts of the world. And there's been some impressive changes, especially with regard to oral therapy for this, and that it's been working on it for as far as I can remember, about a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now this can fairly easily administered and of course allocated treatment can be useful for children. And they're of course the, the main people that suffer from this disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think it's about 60% of the patients are children. But it's just been a challenge after challenge after challenge. But finally, we have something that seems to be fairly easy to distribute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, getting something that's cheap, that's transportable, that's you know durable in terms of its shelf life, seems like it certainly could could be a game changer here too. I know that uh, some of my folks do a lot of uh, global health and global medicine have have sort of seen the impacts of uh, leishmaniasis and have talked about how just devastating it is too. So anything we can do to help reduce this the incidence here it would be very, very beneficial, obviously. So I'm certainly interested to see kind of where this goes, particularly for, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, where this really is, is the most impact. 
Massive problem indeed. So two more things on my list. It's it's pretty short and these are both very common problems. So there's been some breakthroughs in psilocybin and using it in as a single dose. It was in the New England Journal of Medicine in, in last month, I think. And for basically really treatment resistant depression. And I know that you mentioned your wife. What, what does she think about this? You know, I, I don't know, actually. Typically, she doesn't tell her patients to go do mushrooms. Um, no. No, um, Solid but, advice. Uh, <laughs> but in, obviously, in controlled controlled doses and controlled amounts certainly could potentially be beneficial. So I, I, I know there's been lots of different niche practices within the world of psychiatry, too. So, I mean, I think anything we can do to potentially help. I know ketamine was sort of all the rage about 10 years That's ago. Right. <laughs> has fallen out of favor. It's certainly worth pursuing. Uh, obviously, a huge amount of individuals suffering with with anxiety and depression. And if this potentially can help them, certainly should should pursue that. Uh, when all the other sort of lifestyle pieces fail as well, too, I, I think it's important. I think sometimes when some of these sort of medications come out, the the assumption is we can just jump to these new things and forget about all like all of the sort of the lower hanging fruit, the diet, the sleep, the exercise, right? So I think. Yeah. Um, you know, third, fourth line, maybe for treatment resistant depression, potentially something we could think about in the, in the future as these trials move along too. So I, I think that's my only my one caution there is we, we don't want to sort of jump to this, we want to think about doing all the other kind of tried and true things first, which are more work for the patients, quite frankly, than simply taking a medicine. But I true. think this will be interesting to see where it goes. Again, the last one is really about prostate cancer. You know, prostate cancer, if you find it early enough, it's fairly reasonable to treat. It's yep. The problem is when it goes metastatic, it becomes a bit right. of a bear. And exactly. so one of the breakthroughs that's really been this year is using a radioactive tracer to attach to PSMA proteins, and then that can be used for targeted therapy. Mm-hmm. And it's been really exciting to see how actually fairly difficult cases are suddenly now being able to access even complete remissions, or at least long-term stable results, because these are often men of an advanced age. You know, if you can get a solid, you know, stable, sustainable uh, tumor control for 10 years, you really, you've got something going there. So, yeah, yeah. This, this will be, you know, fascinating to see where the, where this goes. I think, again, I haven't seen this used. I'm not a urologist or an oncologist, but I think this certainly could potentially be a game changer. If we can sort of target that metastatic disease specifically without, you know, uh, impact in the entire entire body or less impact on the entire body. I think that certainly could be hugely beneficial. Not only, uh, I mean, maybe this starts with prostate cancer, but potentially other applications and other metastatic cancers as well too, but really could be a game changer. Absolutely. So I think that was actually my entire list. Was there anything else you needed to add or you found that this list didn't quite cover? No, I think I think this is a very a very comprehensive list. I think it's always interesting to see the hype and sort of what we think is going to be the latest and greatest, and where things actually play out. Also, too, uh, and, and always keeping keeping things with a grain of salt, and especially some of these new medicines and new therapies can be quite frankly exorbitantly expensive and limited to really just a select few. But I think it's really important that we think about sort of health equity and, and ensuring that some of these novel treatments, if they do show significant benefit, that we we work to ensure they're available for all of our patients and not just those that are have have insurance or, or live in the population dense cities and things like that as well too. So just just my own uh, my own two cents to throw in there. Well, those are good two cents. So well, I just wanted to thank you so much for joining me on this uh, list and talking it through because I think that you gave a great perspective. It's quite different from mine, and I'm looking forward to talking with you next time after the holidays about the what's coming up in 2023. Well, I appreciate your perspective as well. And and that's why I say medicine is a team sport with all of us coming at it from our own unique angles and collaboratively working together. Okay, well, happy holidays. Same to you. Thanks so much. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and stay healthy.
Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly. 